He could play guitar better than his guitarists. He could play bass better than his bassists. He could play drums as good as his drummers. This is not your average rock and roll star. How many men have that chest voice and that falsetto and can give you that soul preacher vocal? He could scream, who's got that range? Someone came up to Eric Clapton and they asked Clapton, what's it like being the greatest guitar player in the world? And Clapton said, I don't know, ask Prince. Prince. Welcome to Who Was Prince, my eight chapter deep dive into the life of one of the greatest musicians of all time. This is chapter one, titled Honey, I'm Rich on Personality because we're gonna dig deep into Prince's persona, which is complicated because he had multiple personalities. I'm Torre, longtime music journalist for Rolling Stone, and I've interviewed Prince. I've written a book about him called I Would Die For You. I've interviewed most of his inner circle, including his bandmates, his engineers, his managers, his teenage mentor, his childhood best friend, some of his lovers, and the first woman he fell in love with and almost married. He was deep and mysterious. As famous as he was, fans could never really feel like they really knew him. So that's what this trip is all about, helping you get to know the real Prince with help from people who played with him, people who dated him, people who worked for him, people who grew up with him. Everyone in this podcast knew Prince for real. So we're gonna hear about how moody he was, how generous he was, how difficult he could be, how fragile he was. We're gonna talk about what he was like in the studio. We're gonna hear in detail what his crazy childhood was like. We're gonna talk about his creative process, his influences, his clothes. We're gonna dive into what it was like to date him, to be in love with him, to be with him, to break up with him. We'll talk about his struggle to create a family and the tragic story of the baby he had and lost. And what it was like to watch him wither away in his last years and what his last days were like before he died. We're going to try to tell you who was Prince. But before we get there, let's pull back. Prince was one of the greatest musicians of all time. He was a master of almost every part of the game. He was a great singer who could do a falsetto or a baritone, who could croon or scream. And he was a guitar virtuoso who could also play bass, drums, keyboards, synthesizers, so many instruments, he didn't need anyone else to make an album. And he was a great performer whose concerts were epic in no small part because he was a great dancer who created his own dance language. He was also a great songwriter who was equally fluent in funk, rock, soul, new wave, and pop. His sound is so broad and yet so recognizable, it seems like Prince is alone in his own genre. Musically, he's the son of James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Sly Stone, Rick James, and Joni Mitchell, as well as the creative father of Lady Gaga, Andre 3000, Lizzo, Frank Ocean, Janelle Monet, The Weeknd, and countless others. Prince was born in 1958, had a record deal when he was 19, released his debut For You when he was 20. In 1984, he put out his magnum opus Purple Rain, a virtual rock opera, positing himself as a sort of Jesus figure who loved sex and redemption and a semi-biographical movie by the same name. The album and the movie were both massive hits and he became a global megastar and one of the biggest and best-selling artists of his generation. But most importantly, right now, I played basketball with him. If you really want to know who a guy is, 
you can try playing one-on-one with them. Because usually, once the ball comes out and y'all start dribbling around, the masks come off and people get real. I played one-on-one with Prince at Paisley Park in 1998. And I think I got a glimpse of the real man. I was there to do a cover story for Icon Magazine. And after the cover shoot, at my insistence, they cleared out the back and brought out a box full of worn sneakers. And Prince took off his cream-colored heels and put on some old red and white Nike Air Force high tops and had him on under his tight black pants and a sheer long sleeve black scoop neck top. He seemed spontaneous and playful, but when he grabbed the ball, he looked every bit the former backup guard at North Central High. He moved and dribbled and looked like he could ball. He made a face that said, I'm going to kick your ass. And he started jitterbugging around the court, moving quickly, dribbling fast, sliding under my arm to snatch rebounds that I was sure I had. He moves like a ball player, and he plays like one of those high-energy dudes who are always darting around the court in higher gear. Guys, you got to keep your eyes on. Who is he on the ball court? He's smart, he's competitive, he's resourceful, and he's fearless. He's not above driving hard to the rim to try a layup when he's only got an inch of daylight. He seems to think he can make anything no matter what. He's got a deep reservoir of self-confidence and he plays with swagger. He's also a little joker. I made a little move and got past him too easily, and after I laid it in, I looked back at him as if to say, why'd you let me go? He said, I don't foul guests. On the next play, I drove to the hoop again, and this time he bumped me hard on my arm, fouling me, knocking me down. Joker. This was back when he wasn't going by the name Prince, when his name was an unpronounceable symbol. You weren't supposed to say Prince. You weren't supposed to be able to pronounce his name at all. But... What if you absolutely had to call his name? Like, hey, watch out, your guitar is on fire. Or, yo, man, an anvil is heading for your head. What were you supposed to say? I didn't know. Our one-on-one morphed into two-on-two, which was me and Prince against his keyboardist Morris and my photographer. Now I was balling with Prince. Wow. In this game, Prince boldly took the ball to the hole several times, twisting through the air in between both of our opponents a bit too aggressively, but exhibiting the confidence of a man who took on the world by himself and won. And sometimes he even scored. Then I was at the top of the key with the ball dribbling when I saw him make a move doubling back behind his defender and leaving him behind. Prince didn't even know how open he was. I immediately flicked the ball his way, a no-look pass because I grew up watching Magic Johnson. So the ball was flying through the air right toward his head, and he didn't know it was coming. And in a millisecond, I imagined Prince getting hit in the nose with my no-look pass and getting all bloody and getting mad at me for calling him Prince. And I didn't want that to happen, but the ball was already in the air. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Before the ball was near him, I yelled out, Prince! when the word was halfway out of my mouth, I thought, no, that's not his name anymore. And I covered my mouth, so it kind of came out like, and then I'm thinking, oh God, he's going to throw me out of Paisley Park for saying Prince, fuck. Thank God he moved and the ball missed him and flew out of bounds and bounced off harmlessly into the distance. He ran off and grabbed it himself and jogged back, holding the ball and giggling and kind of pointing at me. I said, what? And he teased, you didn't know what to call me. And he loved that. He'd made me indecisive that I was thrown off about his name. He didn't care that I'd called him Prince. He liked that he'd made me awkward for a minute. 
That's when I knew his vaunted name change to an unpronounceable symbol was all part of a massive game he was playing. But it seemed like the game was just for him and letting him have a laugh at all of us. I know y'all can't stop talking about me, but what if I don't give you a way to say my name? In some religions, God's name is not to be said out loud. But that's part of another story for later. Prince and I won that game of two-on-two, 13-12. And guess who hit the last shot? Prince. I don't think he would have had it any other way. Actually, after talking to a bunch of people around Prince, I know he wouldn't have had it any other way. When it comes to like basketball, you know, man, Tori, we, we always get the short end because Prince would cheat. That's Morris Hayes, Prince's keyboardist, who was playing in the game with us that day. He liked to win, and if he don't win, man, he will cheat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were going to lose one way or the other, man, and he hated to lose, man. And, and he was going to win at all costs if he had to upend me or whatever he had to do. Weeks earlier, way before we played basketball, I met him in a conference room at Paisley Park. He was in a maroon velour print suit, a slim cut vest for a top with a matching pants, something you can't buy in stores, of course. And he gripped a gold cane and wore a sly Cheshire Cat smile. There was base makeup covering his face, and his frame seemed so small and wispy that a strong man could snap him like firewood. But I never once thought that he seemed short. It just never occurred to me. Later, thinking back on that, I remember the legendary dancer Rudolf Nureyev saying, On stage, I can be as tall as I want. That was Prince. In the interview with him, I had to write down my answers because I wasn't allowed to record him. Back then, no one was. I had to write down his answers as he talked, which was tricky, especially because of the way that he talked. Before I could even ask a question, he took over the conversation, speaking in a deep, warm, masculine voice. We've been talking about how freedom has affected our people, he said. It's so liberating to work on music with no dogma at all. It's so freeing to record without a clock ticking, without knowing you owe someone royalty money. He was referring to his recent split from Warner Brothers, his record label of 18 years. The dispute that had led him to write the word slave on his face to say that he was a slave to his record label. A lot of people thought he was silly or crazy or disrespectful for that stunt, but it meant the world to him so much so that he was determined to focus the interview on his finances and the reason why he'd called himself a slave. He jumped in and started the conversation there so he could make sure that he got out his talking points early. He said, for me to create an album, tour all over night after night, and get less than the $140 million it grosses is ridiculous. How much would you get? I'd get at most $7 million. I said, still, how could you call yourself slave in light of the history of that word among our people? He said, imagine yourself sitting in a room with the biggest of the big in the recording industry, and you have slave written on your face. That changes the entire conversation. You know what they think of us. They say it makes it real hard to talk to you with that on your face. Why? And it got real quiet. They don't want to get into all that. Adding that language into the conversation worked perfectly. It changed the dynamic of the conversation. He was then known as the artist, or the artist formerly known as Prince. That's what media called him because of the unpronounceable symbol, which was also a way of distancing himself from the label. 
He was trying to renounce his old self by giving himself a new name and thus declaring he no longer owed the label anything because he claimed he was no longer Prince. The label said, no, you're still Prince. Referring to himself as a slave was partly about saying, does the label own my music or my body? Do I have the right to leave it if I want or am I stuck here? He was light years away from being a slave. He was far beyond his ancestors' wildest dreams, but he was reaching for a shocking public gesture that would embarrass the label into a corner and force them to give him the freedom he wanted. I asked, is there a difference between Prince and the artist? He said, only that Prince owns nothing, none of those songs, me. So you're happier now? Did the old music come from a place of pain? him. I won't speculate on where the music came from. I look back in awe and reverence. It's made me become courageous. Me. Courageous around music? Him. Regarding everything. I said, do you realize you've changed a generation with your music? That's when he got defensive. I don't think about that, he said. Why would I? There's no gain in that. Being in control of someone's thoughts, you'll second guess your writing. It was good, but I felt stifled. I was unable to get to the real Prince. I felt he was closed off and defensive. He'd shoved his main talking point down my throat as soon as I sat down, and now he was just dancing away from my questions. I kept thinking, how can I get him to loosen up and really talk to me? So, I said, recalling photos of him in the front row of Lakers games. You like basketball? He relaxed a bit. Yeah. What's your team? Bulls, he said, like, of course. This was back when the Chicago Bulls had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, and were the best team in American pro sports, and a team everybody loved to see win. Prince said, it's going to be rock and roll time next year. The Bulls are going to be like the Beatles. He's Superman, he said, meaning MJ. You don't have to do that much to whoop them people. We shared a laugh because I love Jordan too, but a moment later, somehow we were back on money. He said he admired the music of Erica Badu, De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, and D'Angelo. Then said, D'Angelo's really got to search his heart deeply on being part of the problem or the solution. What's his whole consciousness? He's got to own his masters, he said, referring to master tapes that confer true ownership of a song. He was hewing close to today's talking point like a politician staying on message. He said, black Americans are walking away and getting nothing. How can you not own your masters and try to uplift the community? Let's all of us be part of the solution. Or are we going to get our problem solved for us? The situation in Africa is testament to that. 21 million with AIDS. Don't that spook you? we got to solve our problems or they'll be solved for us. And a man can't solve your problems for you. You and your faith will solve them for you. What? How do we get from D'Angelo and owning your masters to AIDS in Africa? You can see how discursive and head-scratching and fascinating and frustrating it was to talk to him. In basketball, there was no artifice, but here in the conference room, this is all performance and hyperbole. Where was the real prince? He told me another journalist had asked him, do you ever get tired of being so flamboyant all the time? Don't you ever want to wear a t-shirt and jeans? And he reared his head back, eyes wide in mock indignation, as if to clutch symbolic pearls and say, how ridiculous, don't you know who I am? Full of macho bravado, he thrust the cuff of his maroon print suit out toward me and said, feel that, if you could wear that every day, wouldn't you? I felt the cuff. It wasn't a rare or special feeling. What is it, I asked. 
Immediately, his whole demeanor switched. It was an emotional stop on a dime. He went in a heartbeat from larger than life to hushed and humble. Oh, I don't know, he said quietly, dismissively, feigning ignorance of the fabric of his fabulous garment. If you have money, you should act the same, he said. It's currency. It's supposed to move like a current. You ain't supposed to hoard it. You get sick otherwise. I walked out after an hour as though he'd never truly shared himself. I'd been given the day's propaganda, a few side bits, and sent on my way. And today's propaganda, that insistent business talk, had made me feel as though I'd spoken to Kurt Flood, an average baseball player known only for sacrificing his career in the 60s to force the introduction of free agency, when I'd hoped to meet and better understand Willie Mays, the greatest. I was doing a cover story, and I didn't have nearly enough. I asked the publicist if I could email him some questions. She said, okay, so I emailed him 12 questions, mostly about music, and at the last second I tacked on one more. Will you play one-on-one basketball with me? And I zapped the queries into cyberspace. Two days later, he emailed me his answers. I wish I had kept that page. Why didn't I print it out and frame it? I don't know. The impermanence of the Internet seemed clear even then. If he'd written me a letter, I would have put it in a safe deposit box, but his email to me is lost to time and long-forgotten hard drives. I no longer know what my questions were, but I have his answers, which were kind of abstract. He used the letter U for the word U, and the letter R for the word R, like A-R-E, like you are, and the number four for the word four, F-O-R, and two for the word two, T-O, and all that stuff. He wrote, ultimately... Spiritual evolution is the axis on which inspiration and creativity spin. There are so many songs that I've written and recorded, sometimes it is hard for me to believe it comes from one source. And intriguingly, he wrote this. All of my musicality comes from God. The blessing slash curse ensued when I kept sneaking back into the talent line dressed as another person. I got away with it several times before they caught me. At the bottom, in response to my hoop question, he wrote, Anytime, brother. Wow. That's why I went back to Paisley with my ball. He said, anytime. Before we balled, while we were at the photo shoot, I saw a bit of the impish conspiracy theorist that he was. Prince said, you think Reagan has Alzheimer's? It had recently been reported that the former president was suffering from the disease. He gave me a sly look as if to say, don't believe it. I laughed and began writing that down. Don't write that, he said playfully. I already got enough trouble. I'll have the Secret Service at my door. He adopted a mock federal agent voice. You say something about Reagan? When Prince and I played ball, he was a cool, competitive brother's brother who gave himself freely. But when I tried to interview him, he was a circuitous, cagey subject who refused to give me a glimpse of his true self. He seemed like a wannabe revolutionary with his talk of escaping the label system, but also a wry comedian when he brought up Ronald Reagan. Or maybe he was a real conspiracy theorist. I walked away from hanging with him thinking, I don't know who this guy really is. I used to work for Rolling Stone, writing cover stories about rap stars and rock stars like Jay-Z, Beyonce, DMX, Lauryn Hill, Migos. And after a two or three day hang, I always had a pretty good sense of who they were. With Prince, I was lost. Everybody has their own experience of their time with him. That's Wendy Melvoin, who played guitar in the Revolution on Purple Rain and on several albums and tours after that. She knew Prince about as well as anyone. 
He could be five million different people to different human beings on the planet. And he used to say that to me, I'm whatever you want me to be. You know, he had a, a an extraordinary ability to compartmentalize his inner world. That's Susanna Melvoin, who sang with Prince and dated him for years, Wendy's twin sister. I mean that in respect to this sort of multiple personalities. I spoke to Susanna and Wendy to understand Prince because few people knew him better. Apparently, there were several hymns to know. We used to have personality names for him. We always wanted to see the guy Steve. Steve was the nicest guy of all. Well, there was Fred Sanford. You did not want him to come into the room. Fred Sanford was going to kick someone's ass. There was Marilyn Monroe. Sexual, omnipotent creature. Steve was the guy we really liked. Shaft. Those were the names. What was Fred Sanford like? Impatient, annoyed, aggressive, and mean. And what was Steve like? Sweet, funny, quiet, engaged, playful, available, touchy-feely, huggy, wore his tube socks that came up over his knees. Why Steve? Why that name? I don't know. It was just because it's so regular. We just chose the name because it was just so regular of a name. What was Marilyn Monroe like? Seductive. Quiet and seductive. And just full of sexual energy. And uh, Shaft? Oh, yeah, he could do Shaft really. Like, he, he knew how to do the pimp walk really well. He was ready to kick some ass. He, like a vigilante. He was like the guy that was going to, like, make everything okay. But with a, with an iron fist. So Shaft was cool. You could go on stage with yeah, him. Yeah, totally. That was always uh, funny to see him go into that guy. And it, that was usually when he was having a lot of fun with at, at everyone else's expense. Right. And Marilyn Monroe was cool because, totally. you know, we can deal with that. She was treacherous, though. Treacherous. Because sexual energy can, like, be really manipulative. Fred was the one you least wanted to see. Ugh, you want to run. Yeah. 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 Morse Hayes, who played keys in Prince's band years after Wendy, said he found more than four different Prince personalities. I came up with a theory that there were five of them. I call them the five princes. Number one was the first one that I saw when Purple Rain came out. That was the definition of what Minneapolis was. Like, that was the real Minneapolis to me. That's how Prince was. He was the kid. That's number one. Number two is when I actually got in the band and I started going to rehearsal and say, like, oh, my God, this dude is rough. He's mean and he's <laughs> he's rough. And this is Prince number two that I just learned from an insider's perspective, like, oh, my God, he's the he's the, the, the got the whip in the, in the chain and everything. And number three was the was the funny, you know, we playing basketball, we, we playing the dozens, as we say in the South, where we talking about each other's moms and and, and, and uh, joking with each other and goosing each other and and all of this kind of stuff, you know, just the fun uh, going to the movies and uh, the, the fun prints. Number four was the sad prints. It's like the, the hurt and sad prints, like he's having a bad day, so you're going to have a bad day. He's feeling some kind of way in a bad way, and so it's the, it's the sad prints. And number five was to give you the shirt off his back prints. And I'm sure there's some others, but that's the ones that were the most uh, present to me. Once I figured that out, I started shutting my mouth when I came in. And I would just let him talk first and so I can see who showed up today. 
That's when I figured it out. And it was like, okay, number three is here, so it's a fun day today. But if number two shows up, it's like, okay, uh, you better be on your A game or you got a headache today, folks. I tell the band, number two's here today. I already talked to him. So guess what? Number two, better be, you better have your parts ready. And so that helped me to just, because sometimes I, when I didn't apply that theory to Ray, I, what, what would happen is the day before, we just had a ball, man. We like hanging out with girls. We doing whatever it is we was doing. It was fun. Dude. And I come in the next day on the same vibe. Like, man, that was a good. Uh, um, we're, and it just be like, cut. And it's like, oh, that is not the dude from yesterday. So I, I you, hit, you hear the brake skid marks like from, you know, you know a mile away because I had to readjust and get serious and be like, okay, Morris, we got to focus. We got this. And, and you get centered back in the right lane very quickly. So once I start just being quiet, letting him get his thing in first, then I would know. I said, okay, just, just, just leave the jokes behind today, Morris. Don't come in with the clowning. Everyone who knew Prince has stories about his moodiness, his multiple personalities, and how it was confusing to know who was the real Prince. He just wasn't one thing. He was a bad guy that had good moments and a good guy that had bad moments. Really moody. Really moody. For Prince, connecting with a large audience of people through music was easy. He excelled at that. But connecting with a single person standing in front of him and just being human and real with others and sharing his authentic self, that was hard. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. That's Alan Leeds, his longtime manager. He wasn't comfortable in front of people that he didn't know well. The, 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 the lack of trust went so far as to inhibit his comfort level. I, I worked for James Brown, and they were both similar in the sense that James was also rejected by his mother, and that, or felt rejected in the sense that his parents broke up when he was six years old, and his mother left, and he stayed with his dad. So it's, it's an ironically very similar situation. And James didn't trust anybody either. He had very much the same trust issues. Leeds said Prince was enigmatic. It was hard to determine sometimes what the real prince was. And every time I thought I had it nailed, he would say or do something that would send me back to the woodshed to rethink it. I mean, he could be the life of the party as long as it was his party. And he had control over who was there, what the environment was. He would be very much the life of the party. But if he went to somebody else's party, he was going to be the wallflower and he was going to stand back and be quiet and... With him, it was about controlling his environment. I mean, that's what Paisley Park was about. It's like, let's have everything under one roof so I don't have to mix in the public. Leeds says Prince wanted to seclude himself and his crew from the entire world like he had dreams of being like Howard Hughes, the wealthy businessman from the mid-20th century who became known as an eccentric recluse. Alan Leeds said he saw his band and the people who helped them perform as like a family. As much of a tyrant as he could be on some days, he was proud this was his family, quote unquote. And he loved his family. And, and when it came to outsiders, he would protect his family. I mean, he was, you know, very protective of his people when it came to the outside world because he was Howard Hughes-ish trying to convince all of us that we shouldn't have an outside world. We should be like him and live in Paisley Park. When Paisley Park was being built, we had a conversation where he actually said, could you imagine if we all lived close by, meaning the band and the, the crew and management, and just think, 
every time we wanted to shop, we could just go to the nearest mall and have them close it down. And we would just have them all do our... And he was being dead serious. It was like we should have this insulated environment where all of us, and then we'll, we'll get somebody to, to home teach all our kids. It really was dead out of Howard Hughes. Prince was selfish and self-centered and obsessed with doing whatever he wanted. But I think deep down, he was a hurt little boy who was determined to never be hurt or abandoned again. He was someone who excelled at music at the expense of the chance to fully develop himself as a person. So he was a musical genius, but his interpersonal intelligence was low. His growth in that area had been stunted, and it left it hard for him to share himself with others. He wanted to talk to the world through music alone. Susanna Melvoin, his former fiancé, knew that better than most. He spoke the language of music, period. He wasn't going to, let's go to a wine party or let's sit and talk about feelings. Nope, it was going in the studio and writing music and opening up that portal. His way of being in the world was to express himself musically. That's Susan Rogers, Prince's engineer on Purple Rain and several subsequent albums. He was verbal, he was erudite, he was smart, and he was communicative, but he preferred not to talk with words, he preferred to play, which is why uh, we'd, we'd do a big arena show, and after a show, he'd go play an after party. Because he wants to be with people, he's social, he wants to hang out, but he doesn't want to be engaged in conversation with people, he wants to be playing. So he would wake up in the morning, if he woke up in the morning, sometimes it'd be afternoon or middle of the night, depending on what time we finished the day before, but uh, take a few business calls, uh, talk to his operations manager, Alan Leeds, or Karen Crattinger, or his house manager, Sandy Scipione, and then, and then it was he would have an instrument in his hand, and then it was music from there on out. Wendy Melvoin also recognized Prince's struggle with communicating. Communicating verbally was not his strong point. It just, it just wasn't, I think... What was easy for him was just music. That was a, his form of language that came easiest to him. Music was at the center of his life because that's what he wanted, but it was also a compulsion. One of Prince's girlfriends told me he has no control over his life. The music is channeled through him. When the music tells him to play, he does. When the music tells him to sleep, he does. He considers it a blessing and a curse. Again, more than just having layers, to many people it seemed like he had multiple personalities. Leroy Bennett was Prince's lighting and set designer for the first 14 years of Prince's career. I mean, there wasn't just one person in there. He's a, he, he's, he was a Gemini. There were more than one person in that body, and they were constantly fighting. I think that was, it was a genius, a hurt little boy, a frightened little boy, a fragile boy. A very confident person, a very confident musician. There was, as a human being, he was fragile. As a musician, he was a warrior. You know, I mean, he was really strong. So it was like there was those two things that were his weak side and his really strong side. And I think that's what they were constantly fighting. Prince was complicated. Trying to understand him in some neat, tidy package is nearly impossible. But on this podcast, we're going to try to do just that and answer a nearly unanswerable question. Who was Prince? For one thing, Prince was driven. Des Dickerson, who was a guitarist in the revolution in the early days, said for Prince, 
Driven was a continuous state of being. They could rehearse for six or eight hours, and then he'd go on for another four or five hours on his own. That was his normal. And that drive took him from living in a friend's basement in Minneapolis to having massive wealth and global fame and the sort of career that comes around once or twice a century. It's both his innate gift and his superhuman work ethic and a deep need to escape and conquer his past that led him to everything. So imagine you're a kid and you have a fantasy of being a rock star. In your fantasy mind, here's what would happen. You'd get signed to a record deal at a really young age, maybe as a teenager. You'd be given carte blanche to be your own producer. You don't need no stinking producer. You're going to produce yourself. You'd be, in your fantasy mind, you'd be writing all these great songs. Check. You'd be playing all the instruments yourself. Check. You'd uh, be hugely successful. Check. There'd be a movie about your life. Check. You'd have tons of money. Check. You'd have employees. Check. Got that. You'd be enigmatic. People would wonder, who is this guy? Oh, and you'd be really good looking and women would be crazy about you. That's the fantasy, right? It came true. And fantasies like that don't come true because little kids tend to have really impossible fantasies. It did in this man. In this eight-chapter podcast, we're going to try to answer the question, who was Prince, by talking about him from several different vantage points. And through all of this, we will answer the question, who was Prince? Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall, our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.